Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month, I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Greetings, friends and music nerds. Welcome back to the never-ending, hopefully, season three of the podcast. I hope you've had a chance to keep up with all the latest. If you've missed some of the last episodes, make sure you go and check them out, okay? My guest this month is the incredible guitarist, frontman for his own projects, and sideman to many people, including the late, great Merle Haggard, Mr. Red Volkart. Before we get going here today, I just wanted to make an announcement about a live broadcast we're going to be doing. I'm pretty excited about this. I've never done a live episode of the podcast before, so this will be the first one. And it is part of the Elnora Guitar Festival, which happens at the Cranert Center. And that is in Champaign, Illinois, which is about two plus hours south of Chicago, a couple of hours northeast of St. Louis. And it's a beautiful facility and an incredible guitar festival that I've played at before, and I'll be performing at it again this year. I'm going to be doing sort of an improvised set with Luther Dickinson and Rob Ikes and Trey Hensley. That's going to be a lot of fun. And then I'm doing a solo set the next day. Um, That's at a show with Molly Tuttle. Now, speaking of Molly Tuttle, she is going to be the guest on the live broadcast episode. So the date is September the 6th. That's a Friday. The festival runs that whole weekend, starting on the Thursday, I believe. It could be the Wednesday. But the podcast is going to happen on Friday at 2.45 p.m. It's free to get in. There will be a live studio audience, and I will be interviewing Molly Tuttle for the episode. So I hope some of you can make it if you're in the uh, Illinois area, or if you're going to be at the Elnora Guitar Festival at the Cranert Center, make sure you come and 
um, hang out at the live taping of the podcast. So that's Friday, September the 6th at 2.45 p.m. Hope to see you there. All episodes of this podcast are brought to you from the Hen House Studio, just south of Nashville, Tennessee. It's my own place where I work recording and producing for bands and solo artists from all over the world. If you're in need of a recording or mixing facility or some tracks for your next project, feel free to check it out at thehenhousestudio.com and you're always welcome to drop me a line about working together on your music or if you'd like to comment on the podcast, feel free to reach out and contact me at steve at thehenhousestudio.com. Now, on to this month's episode. Red Volkert is really one of the good guys out there. He loves playing music, and anytime I see him or run into him at a festival, he really just wants to hang out and play guitar. It's been his life's obsession, his job, and the thing that's led him down so many crazy paths. I've met him a few times at music festivals over the years, and we taught at a camp together last year as well, and had a chance, I had a chance to get to know him a little then. We also share the fact that we're both from British Columbia, Canada. Most people think of Red as an Austin, Texas native through and through since he's so ingrained in the music scene there, but he's really just a good old Canadian boy like me. His story of playing in Canadian bars and traversing the country is something that I can sort of relate to, although I, although I was doing it about 20 years after he was. But going from there and letting his drive and curiosity and talent lead him to the U.S., is actually a pretty wild and crazy story that he's going to tell today. He spent a bunch of time in California and Nashville, which we'll get into, uh, before landing the coveted gig that took up most of his time for a number of years touring and recording with the great Merle Haggard. Over the last 20 years or so, Red has become a fixture on the Austin, Texas music scene, and he can be seen regularly at the Continental Club and the Saxon Pub, among lots of other regular gigs. Go see his band if you can. They're incredible. And look him up at redvolkart.com. I'm going to spell it for you because it's a weird one. Uh, his first name, Red, is R-E-D-D, and Volkart is V-O-L-K-A-E-R-T, redvolkart.com. He's also got some great solo records available there. So go get some Red Volkart music, and my conversation with Red will be up in just a minute. All right, now we need to take care of just a little bit of business before we get going. I want to tell you how you can get behind the show and support it. There's a bunch of ways to do it. Go to iTunes, subscribe, leave a comment, a good comment preferably, and spread the word. Tell all your friends. Uh, you can also financially support the podcast with a one-time donation, which is great, or by contributing monthly through our Patreon site. All that information is on my website at stevedawson.ca. You go to the podcast page, and right at the top are the two ways to contribute to the show. So if you want to consider doing that, that's a big help. Uh, also, this year we have t-shirts and maybe some other swag a little bit later as the season progresses. That's also at the same website, stevedawson.ca, podcast page. It's all right there at the top. Any of those ways that you feel inclined to help out the show would be greatly appreciated. And lastly, a word from this week's sponsors, Union, Tube, and Transistor. They have some new products coming down the line. First of all, they're doing a killer new guitar signal splitter called the GBX95. It allows you to split your guitar to up to 6 amps plus a DI, which is actually way harder to do than it should be. Very handy for recording multiple guitar amps. Next, they're about to release their 343 guitar amp. It features a very unique 10 and 12 inch speaker switching feature. You can run one or both speakers for tonal options. And finally, their lab compressor pedal is a little optical compressor and is killer both in front of a guitar amp or as a piece of outboard studio gear. I use one pretty much all the time. 
head on over to uniontone.com to find out more. All right then, let's do this. Here is this month's episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I think you're a really unique individual for a lot of reasons, but but one in particular, and maybe you have to be from Western Canada to appreciate this, but this how <laughs> how you go from being a kid in Chilliwack, BC, to playing lead guitar for Merle Haggard and becoming, you know, like one of the most respected tele players in, in America is mind boggling at, to, to say the least. So that's kind of what I'd like to get to the bottom of is, you know, like obviously you're a kick-ass player and you worked your ass off to get there, but, um, you know, it's a kind of a remarkable path as well. So maybe we could talk, you know, just a little bit about some of the facets of, of how that all happened. Oh, sure. Sure. So Chilliwack in the, so you were, you were, growing up there in the late late 50s Actually, i'm from i'm uh, from a little area called fleetwood okay which is in in the municipality of surrey okay uh so i went to uh fleetwood uh elementary school and then uh, north surrey high school i don't know if you know that area at all sure oh okay so it's more uh, north surrey is kind of the next thing closest to wally <laughs> okay that was our city at the time you know right yeah but when I was a kid, that that was it. I mean, uh, Fraser Highway was a two-lane road and blah, blah, you know. We walked to school uh-huh. <laughs> like everybody else. But, yeah, so I grew up there in uh, North Surrey, and then uh, my parents split up, and I went with my dad, and he moved to Cloverdale. Mm-hmm. So I lived there for a few years, and then uh, when I, you know, got my license finally, uh, then I could uh, – go to a whole bunch of other gigs until then i was lucky enough to have some old guys that would come they thought i played good enough so they come pick me up and take me to the the gigs and i played you know the legion i call it the antler circuit you know doing the (laughs) elks and the moose and all the everything with horns on it and the legions and yeah that kind of stuff so that's kind of where i cut my teeth playing uh as a teenager you know it started probably like 13. how old were you when you actually picked up the guitar uh, 10 years old. Okay. And, and, um, was it an acoustic or electric? Like how did you first get into it? Well, I didn't want to, it was a hand me down. It was my, I'm a middle child. So my brother's a year older. Mm-hmm. So of course, everything that, uh, he outgrew or didn't want, then I got, you know, so <laughs> okay. it, it was, uh, he got the guitar. It was a little tiny, like a single old Martin size guitar. It was a harmony. Nice. A little plywood one. And he got it and didn't want it and wanted to take up the drums. Okay. So my dad looked at the guitar in the corner and said, oh, you should play the guitar. Yeah. So being a smart ass 10 year old, I thought, nah, I'm <laughs> sick of all his clothes and all his broken bike and everything else. And yeah. So I want to play the bass, dad. And he said, nah, I think if you played the guitar first, the bass would be easier. No, nah, so I wasn't buying it, but of course I didn't have any say in it. So I ended up with the guitar and uh-huh. uh, took reading lessons from uh, a wonderful player I didn't know at the time, but you know, since from other recordings and other people that talked about him, a fellow named Danny Romanuk. Okay, was a guitar player, teacher, guy in our area, and uh, kind of a jazzy guy and George Barnes kind of player. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I took lessons from him for about three months, and then he fired me because I was cheating. I wasn't learning to read. And uh, You're just, just like, a, like a fast ear learner? Is that what you were doing? Well, no, I, I was watching what he did, and I memorized it. You okay, know? yeah. So, that old trick. Uh, I, 
I dropped my pick, and he when I bent down to get it, he turned the page, and I came back, and I still played Eau Claire de la Lune. <laughs> but, but it was Can Can on the next page, you know? <laughs> so he busted you. Did you really get fired? Like he said, don't come back next week. You're being a slacker? Well, no, he said he called my dad in. And, you know, when my dad come to pick me up after the lesson, he said, I think we need to talk. And my dad says, what, have I got a genius on my hands? And he said, no, nah, I don't know about that. But he said, he's not learning to read. Yeah. So my dad was paying for lessons. And, you know, back then it was, uh, I think it was $2.50 for, for a half hour right. for a lesson. So he was mad as hell over that because he blew, you know, three months worth of that on me. And I wasn't learning to read. And he said, well, how'd you catch him? And he said, well, they told him. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, well, what do you suggest? And he said, well... He's obviously got a good enough ear and a good memory, so I just let him. He doesn't want to learn at 10 years old. He's not into learning the notes and things, so I would just let him play with the other kids in the neighborhood and let him pick it up that way and offer records like he's been trying to do, you know? That's pretty good advice. So it, yeah, so it was a good advice, and, you know, that was that. So I got my licking when I got home because of that. They don't waste <laughs> all that money. And uh, so I liked it even less, of course, at that point. Right. And uh, were you into music though? Like, were you listening to it and, and, uh, and being into it? Like, were you into guitar players and stuff at that point? No, not at all. I was just kind of like, you know, I had to take lessons and I hated practicing and like every, like every <laughs> accordion player probably, you know, just hated it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I just kind of blew it off. And I don't know, probably a summer went by. So by the time I'm 11, my brother's drumming in a, you know, a little garage band with some other kids down the street. And yeah. so I'm like, wow, that's cool. That's great. Maybe I ought to pick that guitar up. So I go back home, of course, I pick the guitar up and start plinking around with it. And I find some sounds and stumble on some stuff. And, you know, I learn all the usual wipeout and walk, don't run and perfidy and all the ventures kind of stuff. And I learn how to figure out some of that stuff and watch those guys every chance I can and steal all their stuff. And, so it wasn't, you know, wasn't a year I had pretty much, I guess, what what they were doing down, you know, at least as bad as them, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, it was all of a sudden, oh, uh, Chris's little brother plays pretty good. Maybe we ought to get him. <laughs> so they devoted one of the guitar players to bass. So he just took two strings off his little Zenon Japanese really? guitar and he played the bass on that. And, yeah. And uh, me and another fellow played guitar and. So from then on, the hook was in because I was in a real band at that point, I thought, you know. Yeah, man. And did you have an electric guitar at that point? Like, did you pick something up to amplify? Uh, yeah, my dad got got me, uh, like, later that year, I got a, a little, uh, I don't know, he found a, a Harmony amp at a garage sale, and he built a bigger cabinet, so it looked like a real amp. It was a little bitty one, <laughs> probably with a six in it. And he built a bigger cabinet and put a 12-inch speaker on us up, and he found, and uh-huh. put it in there. And I, so I had me a little amp with a 12. And and uh, I think the first electric I got was a Tysco or something like that, sort of Jaguar-looking rig. Right, cool. And uh, so, yeah, that was my, my rig then, and... Uh, so I learned to play and did that, and and then uh, I was delivering papers and saved up enough money, and then we'd been down to Seattle and uh, to Joe's Music in Linwood is a music store. I don't know if it's still there, but it was years ago. Uh-huh. And they had, were a Fender dealer, so they had brand new Fenders. Ah. And I saw that. I went looked in the store with him, and 
I saw a black maple neck. This was in 72 or three. Okay. And I saw, of course, I saw Richie Blackmore's Stratocaster hanging there. And ah. I, I, I had to have it because if, if, if I had a black Strat, well, I could play like them. Yeah, you, you could know. pretty much be in Black Sabbath. Any, well, anything. I could rule, you know. So my dad says, well, $310, you better start saving. I said, well, I got 250 you know. So I had to wait a while. And finally, I had 340 bucks saved up of my paper out money. I said, let's go, let's go. Of course, I wore his ass out about going down there. And sure. So on the way there, he says, well, I think maybe we got to go to a pawn shop first to see if we can find a used one. And that was like a kick in the nuts to me, you know, it was just. Yeah, you want the shiny, uh, the shiny new black one. Yeah, I wanted a brand new one that no other Gomer had been, <laughs> you know, picking on. Yeah. So uh, he's like, no, no, I think we should go. So we went pawn shop, and long story short, I bought a 58 Stratocaster for $90. Holy shit. <laughs> With no case, though. But it was kind of beat up, and to me, you know, I was, I was, you know, I was uh, what was I, maybe 12 or 13, uh-huh. 13, I guess. Yeah. So to me, it was like, yeah, that looks like the, and my dad's like, that looks just like the one on the back of one of your records. And I knew exactly. I said, yeah, it's like the one on the Layla album. Oh yeah. Beat to shit, you know? Right. And he's like, yeah, but look at the price difference. How much you save? And I said, yeah, but look at that new shiny one. Look at how awesome that is. <laughs> you know? And he's like, nah, I think you ought to get this old one. And a lot of old stuff's made better, sure, like, just like cars, you know. Not The new ones aren't quite as good. You know? Smart dad. <laughs> yeah. So, I, of course, I end up getting the thing, and I wind all the way home. And he said, well, your Uncle Vic owns a body shop, so he could paint the body black if you have to have it done, <laughs> you know. Okay. <laughs> so you know what happened then. <laughs> I guess you painted it black. Oh, yeah, I had him paint it black, so I was Richie Blackmore. Oh, my God. But, you know, the ball was rolling at that point, so I was just I was doing good. And and a neighbor, weird enough, our neighbor played a little bit of guitar, and he had one of these goofy, uh, it's an 11 or Levine or something, like a jazz box. Oh, yeah. And, and a 54 twin oh. that had been recovered. So he said, I'll sell you this amp if you want it. It's too big for me. And I was like, big amp, I could be a rock guy with that thing. <laughs> so I wound up with that 54 twin. It was a 26L6 twin, you know, small, low power. Right. But so- 212s and great sounding amp. So that was my little rig for playing in all the weekend bands and legions and wedding gigs and all that kind of stuff for a couple of years, you know. As far as you picking stuff out by ear, what were you really into at that point when you were when you were just kind of like getting decked out with your fancy new guitar and stuff and like you mentioned Richie Blackmore was he a big one for you well later on I mean at first when I first got going kind of I was really into the instrumental vent- ventures kind of thing and yeah I like that sound of reverb and just the surfy sort of thing as a kid you know and yeah and uh, but my parents had a great record collection so ah. they always played uh, my mom liked uh Les Paul and Mary Ford and Jimmy Bryant and Speedy West and she liked Crazy Auto, a piano player, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, uh, Etta James. She liked all kinds of stuff like that. Hip mom. And my dad was a, was a blues and a country guy. So nice. he had, you know, Buck Owens, Merle Haggard, Waylon, Ray Price, wow. all their first records. Uh, and then he was a blues nut. So he had every, 
everything that all the Kings made and from the 78s on, you know, uh-huh. Albert King and BB King and Freddie King and, uh, Jimmy Reed. He loved Jimmy Reed and a bunch mm-hmm. of that stuff. So I heard a lot of that stuff and, you know, I don't, I don't, I didn't sit down and, uh, actually try and figure out a bunch of those things till a lot later, you know, okay. but I remember hearing it all and, and, Absorbing you know, it. Yeah, absorbing it, I guess, because later on, I was like, wow, I love that. I don't know why, you know. <laughs> so can you remember like when, like later on when you did start sitting down and like really figuring out people's licks? I don't know if you were that kind of guy. It sounds like maybe you were for a while. Uh, oh, sure. So so what were the things that you remember like learning the most as a youngster, like when you were starting out? Well, my first real hard stuff was like, you know, Wildwood Flower, uh, you know, I heard the Maybell Carter one, and I thought it was kind of corny. And then I heard the Chet Atkins one, and I went, wow, look what he did. Right. You know, by course, I couldn't play it, so I learned the Maybell one. Yeah. And that was hard enough. <laughs> and then uh, Buckaroo was my next big, uh, it had come out, been out for, I don't know, a couple of years. So that was my next big instrumental to learn, and that was a bear to get. And and then from then on, I just was like, Buckaroo, oh, Buck Owens, cool. So I stole a bunch of those. I learned the Mexican polka and Razzmatazz polka. And, of course, you know, as you know, in Canada, polkas are kings. Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> polkas and waltzes. Get lots of mileage out of those at the uh, at the Elks Hall that you're playing at. Oh, you know it. Because, yeah, back in those days, people still played instrumentals. And yeah. actually, they played them on the radio uh, when they always had a minute or two left before the farm report or the news. The, the on the radio stations they didn't they didn't have commercials right up until the news came on it was like oh that was so and so just finished we got about two minutes left before a farm report so here's jimmy bryant and speedy west you know nice. and they would do that <laughs> so i heard lots of great instrumentals and people were at that point uh in my, in my life they that was still popular the bands would play them in the clubs and the bars and stuff right right so That's awesome. uh, yeah so I got to play a lot of them and exercise that and try and stumble through most of it and get them down a little bit better as time went on. But that was kind of my my thing. I didn't want to sing. I had nothing to do with it, scared uh-huh. of it, all of that. I yeah. just wanted to be a guitar player. And so all I did was work on instrumental stuff. And, and of course, with my brother and all his buddies, I couldn't admit that I liked any country stuff. So, uh, you know, we were copying for, we would play like the little sock hops and, and lunch hours at school, uh, during high school, uh-huh. but we would play, you know, Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and Grand Funk and that kind of stuff. That was the, the big shit rock stuff when I was a little kid that was real popular. So, so you could play all that we learned stuff a bunch too. of those kind of things. So, yeah. and that was real hard too. I mean, today even <laughs> try and play highway star, right. You know, <laughs> from deep purple, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. smoke in the water, any Gomer can play that in guitar center, but see you play the highway star solo or, you know, just a whole bunch of that sort of stuff was really, really hard to play, especially at that age. It still is today for me, but, it was good stuff to learn. So I was into both sides of the fence at that point at probably 13 or 14. Yeah. I had my stack of country stuff on the bottom of my record pile. And so that way when it. kids come from school, they come over, they wouldn't see it. They just see all the, <laughs> you know, Johnny winter and 10 years after, and you know, all the deep purple and that kind of stuff. So right, right. that was the stuff I worked on as well. So uh-huh. I kind of, 
I like both styles or, of everything, really, and a little bit of blues stuff. At the time, I wasn't really into it. I'd heard a lot of it, but it was you know, as a little kid, it wasn't fast enough, so right. I didn't want to deal with it. You know, I just wanted to burn. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. So, so like some of the like the crazier stuff, like the Jimmy Bryant stuff. Were you able to play that at a young age, or, or were you sort of like working your way up to that at, at that point? I kind of was working my way up to it because I had to. I think of it now. I didn't know. I was a, like, I'm not much smarter than I was then. But <laughs> I think about it. I think about it now. I was, you know, kind of climbing up the ladder and the learning end of it, as far as starting with the buckaroos or the razzmatazz polkas, and and I would learn the positions that you would learn those songs in. Yeah. And then I would eventually, as time goes on, you you're playing with another band, and all of a sudden they're playing another song you never heard of. And A, and you say solo, and you go, <clears throat> okay. Right. You start dorking around, you know, you're in A. Hey, that's the same <laughs> position that that uh, the Mexican polka was in. So I could play a little piece of that and go, oh, that'll fit in there. Uh-huh. So that's how that kind of started that way. Right. And then that eventually led to the learning pockets and positions to play out of. Uh-huh. And for me, that kind of came together at about, I don't know, 16 or 17, I guess. Okay. Where where I could go, okay, A is here, and I could play the same stuff if I move up to the eighth fret and, and do it there. It's exactly the same in another key. Ah, wow. So that kind of yeah. led to that. So then I would sit with my, at that point, cassette tapes and uh, and records, too. I mean, I put a lot of quarters on the needle wearing out records. Right. That, <laughs> cassette tapes was a beautiful thing. You know, because you could back it up and back it up, tear the tape out. Yeah. And uh, so I would do that with the Jimmy Bryant stuff and just try and figure out, you know, Arkansas Traveler and the little kind of polka sort of ditty sort of songs. The Little Rock Getaway was, you know, as close as I'll ever get to Chet Atkins wannabe. But it was, you know, a nice slow intro to start so I could figure it out easier. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's how I kind of got into that was thinking about the... uh, the positions or the pockets that you play out of for, uh, you know, like there's several little areas you could play in the key of A and, and then they all move up and down the neck, of course, yeah. as you know, for, for any other key, but it, you know, that kind of came to light to me probably at about 16 or 17, maybe. And you're, and you're figuring and, the, all, all this out just by yourself. You, you never took lessons after that guy that, uh, that wouldn't teach oh, you. Oh, no. Yeah. No, and I, you know, I played in a bunch of little weekend bands, and if there was something, you know, back in those days, bands played when they opened a mall or a car lot. So, right. You know, I on Saturday and Sunday, shit, all I did was ride my bike. I'd go to Wally or <laughs> New Westminster on my bike, cross <laughs> Petula Bridge, you know, <laughs> and on my bike just to see, you know, a country band playing. The Nashville Touch would be playing at the opening of a, of a new car lot or something, you know, uh-huh. and they played at noon. So shit, I'd be up at nine o'clock on my bike, just hauling ass and <laughs> get over there and watch the guy play with a Telecaster and try and steal all this stuff, you know? Wicked. <laughs> when you, when you talk about playing the legions and, and the Elks halls and all that stuff, but the people that more your age were into the rock stuff, were the bands you were playing with at the legions and stuff, were they older guys that you were playing with? Oh, to me, yeah, they were ancient. You know, they were all, had, you know, they all shaved and, and wore regular shirts and, and the dress pants. You know, okay. So, so yeah, know. they were, they were probably, 
I'm going to say now they were probably from 45 to 60 kind of a range. Okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. they were all day, day gig guys, welders and pipe fitters and fishermen right. and tugboat captain was one guy I worked with for a long time. And, nice. uh, yeah. So they were all, you know, had good day gigs and stuff like that. And, and they just did it on the weekend for fun because they loved music and wanted to sound like Jim Reeves, sure. you know? Yeah. So w- would you venture into Vancouver at all, or, or was Vancouver kind of just too far of a reach for you at that point? Oh, no. I played a bunch of the legions of dives out there. And then, of course, when I got my license, I played a lot more of the uh, the cabarets and the bars back then, or the clubs back then, with... Uh, they were more, I guess, top 40 kind of bands at the time. Okay. You know, uh, you know, when I was 17, 16, uh, bands like Sister Golden Hair was <laughs> was on the radio and Steve Miller and that kind of stuff was sure. real popular. You know, so yeah. the bands that I played with played that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. And, I, you know, and, and to me, it was, it was still fun to play, but it wasn't as intense or uh, as learning you know, some Chet Atkins or Jimmy Bryant or Les Paul or Hank Garland or that kind of stuff. But yeah. it was still fun to play and try and get that nasty sound that those guys got. And sure. I never did have a pedal or nothing like that for ever. I, I don't think I bought any pedals until uh, maybe the eighties, maybe the middle eighties or something like that. You know, uh-huh. I, I just had a, at that point, I think I was using a super reverb and, and uh, I had a Les Paul Jr an old uh, single cut, like a awesome. 56 or seven. Yeah. That's and, all you need. Yeah. It was awesome. I had that and, and my strat, you know, so yeah. I could get all the twangy shit out of the strat and all the blues guy rock thing out of the junior. Right. Right. So, and, and all through the super, I just crank it up because those other guys were in the rockier bands. They were all drunk and high. So they were real loud anyway, <laughs> you know, so I just crank the amp up so you'll be sorry and uh-huh. jump in the pile with them, you know? Yeah. You can get pretty, uh, you can get pretty cranking out of a super man. Oh yeah. You bet. Yeah. Uh, so eventually I know you left the lower mainland. You headed to like, did you end up in Calgary or Edmonton? Uh, actually I moved to Edmonton first from Vancouver. Yeah. And a couple of guys had talked me into coming out there. They were going to move out there, uh-huh. uh, Edmonton area, and they wanted to start a trio. So this bass player that sang and the drummer that sang and said, hey, you want to come with us? So I, yeah, well, I'll go, you know. So packed up and moved and yeah. uh, moved to Edmonton first and then thumped around there with this little trio called Picker. Mm-hmm. And uh, we traveled around. We played six days a week and drove on Sunday to the next town and uh, played a Saturday matinee at every bar we ever played in. We went all over, mostly Alberta and Saskatchewan with that band, a little bit Manitoba. There was a lot of gigs and, in those uh, days, eh? Oh, yeah, this was in the 70s. So, you know, Alberta is uh, an oil province, so it, it was like swinging with the oil industry. And every little town had two hotels in it, and each hotel had a bar, and one was rock and one was country. Right. That way they could appeal to all the riggers and all those folks, you know, the farmers and the local people and all of that. So every place was packed all the time. Back in those days, I remember the, some of the bars in Edmonton where they would seat 700 people in a bar. Holy shit. And, and a, oh, yeah. And a waitress would carry a tray the size of a 
uh, a picture that you'd have in your living room and it'd be like 30 beers on a tray. Oh yeah. It's unbelievable. You know, looked like Oktoberfest, I guess, you know, yeah, yeah. but yeah, it was awesome time and lots of bands, lots of music, lots of playing, lots of jamming, you know, so I played six nights a week. And of course we'd stay in the hotel that we were playing at. Sure. And then I would meet some other guys that are playing at the other hotel or the next town over you know, just 20 miles away and spend all day jamming with them, swapping cassette tapes. And Hey, have you ever heard of this guy? No, no. Let me see. Oh, let's hear that. Great. Waste the whole week doing that all day, every day and just eat up with music. So yeah, I did that for probably 15 years of that. You know, there's a name that comes up on your website that I was looking at a guy named big George Moody, who I, I found a couple things of him on YouTube. He, he was an incredible player. So what was your, did you cross paths with him in Canada or was that when, after you got to the States? Yeah. Uh, when I was a little kid, my dad had, had heard him and cause he, uh, big George was from, uh, I think Bangor, Maine. Mm-hmm. And he moved to Canada, uh, probably 67 or so. I'm going to guess it was because of the draft, maybe. Right. I don't yeah. know. So he he floated around Canada, was in Alberta a lot, and then he came to Vancouver for a couple of years. Uh-huh. And my dad had seen him play there. And I remember my dad saying, man, if you think you're any good, you need to see this old guy named George Moody. Uh-huh. And I heard it, he said that a lot. So when I moved to Alberta, I hear these guys talking about Big George. Uh-huh. Where is he? Where is he? You know, oh, he plays here and there and there and there. So pretty soon it was uh, probably six months. I had uh, something happen where we got, we got canceled out of a gig. So I had the weekend off. So he was playing in this little town called Wetaskiwin, Alberta. Sure. Uh, at the Royal Hotel, which are, there's no royals in any any royal hotels in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, hell, I'm going to take that whole weekend. I'm going to go get a room there and just go watch that guy play. So I did. I went and got a room. It was like Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And I thought, I'll go back home Sunday, get my stuff, travel to the next gig. Yeah. So I went and saw him Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Of course, Thursday, I was just shitting my pants because I'd never seen anything, <laughs> a guy alive like that, just really? on record. You yeah. Know? yeah. So, yeah, he was like Chet Atkins and Hank Garland and Jimmy Bryant, all in one guy. Like all the guys that I'd kind of been obsessing over he was there he was he was but he playing a big fat gibson 175 and wow through a deluxe little deluxe reverb and just tearing it up with a thumb pick what was his story like what like why is he sort of off the radar as far as he just kind of like never really made a, a big name for himself or something uh he played with dick curlis on some of his records okay uh, who was another main guy back in I don't know, the early fifties or so. Yeah. And then, uh, he was friends with Lenny bro's parents, uh, Hal Lone Pine and Betty sure. Cody. Yeah. So lots of stories on him teaching Lenny when he was a little kid. Wow. Uh, of George showing him some of the Chet Atkins kind of stuff. And, Cause he'd played with his dad, Hal Lone Pine as well, uh, who was from Bangor as well. And, uh, so when he moved to Canada, I don't know what, what happened or what his story was as far as bad stuff going on. But while he was there, he drank, he drank a lot. So I'm sure that's what kept him out of the, any kind of a big time or sessions or any kind of anything that uh, way. That'll do Cause it. he was a, yeah, he was a rounder. He'd rather fight than play too. I mean, he was a wrestler. <laughs> really? He just loved wrestling with guys to get drunk and he'd drink a, uh, you know, 
quart of vodka a day easy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but he was a good fellow, a nice guy. And he just loved young guitar players that wanted to learn and would help and do anything for them kind of guy. And so, yeah, that first night I saw him, I was just like, Oh, oh my God, I was scared to say anything. So I never even went to talk to him until I think the third set on Friday night. I said, man, that's unbelievable. He said, you must be a guitar player. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, you've been sitting there staring at my fucking hand all for the last two days. <laughs> I said, well, I got to confess, I, I'm a wannabe, but I ain't a guitar player anymore, not after watching your big ass play, you know. <laughs> uh, and so did, did we you hit it off right away, and, yeah. you know, he was a funny guy and not, you know, kind of an oddball guy, and we got along great, and so he would never hire me. I begged him to hire me. I said, I'll come play bass for you. Cause a lot of his bass players were want to be guitar players, uh, but course. he didn't pay him nothing. It was like real shit money, Really, but it was, you know, they get lessons off them. And I yeah. said, I'll do it for nothing. <laughs> I, you know, I'll figure it out. I'll do it for nothing. I just want the lessons. Yeah. He said, no, I can't do that to you. You play too good boy. Mm-hmm. You know? So, uh, he never would hire me, but luckily he was playing a lot in some of the bigger towns that I was in several times when I was there as well with other bands. Okay. So we'd always get together during the day, uh, just sitting on the end of the bed in the hotel room, mm-hmm. playing guitars unplugged all day, like 10 hours, you know? Shit, that's good. So we did a lot of that. And, yeah. uh, so I got to play with him and jam with him a lot. And so I, in that way, he was kind of my mentor as my hero guy to steal stuff from. So uh, eventually, I know that you left Alberta. I don't know if you got sick of the scene or, or whatever, but you made your way to California, right? Yeah, I want to. I actually, you know, for a long time, I'd wanted to, uh, you know, go to Nashville or just the States because I didn't know anything about it really, other than all the big shots live there that I like to play in. So uh-huh. I, I thought, I want to go to the States and, you know, maybe meet uh, Roy Nichols and all, you know, all those kind of guys and Leon Rhodes and Buddy Emmons and all these guys, you sure. know, and so I, I was, my goal was wanting to do that. And I was thinking, you know, probably in the middle eighties when I left, it was kind of, for me, I was working a lot. I played all the time and, you know, lots of bands, all kinds of stuff, did a bunch of TV stuff early on with the Prairie Fire Band and, mm-hmm. uh, for, they were from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, a guy named Brian Scalara had a really good, kind of a hardcore country Western swing band. And uh, we had a TV shows and that's probably where you saw Moody was on that number yeah, one West. TV that's show. exactly where I saw him. Yeah. Yeah. And before that, Brian had a, had a TV show. We did, uh, I think one at the crossroads in Calgary and then one at the ranchman's for a while with, I think it was Wayne Bowl or Ian Tyson or somebody like that. And, yeah. And uh, so I did a bunch of that stuff. So, I was kind of like, well, this looks like it's about as high as a guy could kick as a guitar player just working in a band around here. So I want to go watch these guys play and learn some more stuff. Right. You know, and and at that point, to me, it was like middle 80s, I guess like any small community, the music thing in Canada to me is, it just seemed like, not to, to sound shitty on it, but it seemed like everybody up there would gauge a good player if he sounded like somebody, mm-hmm. you know, like in the eighties, it was like, Oh, you ought to see this guy. He sounds just like Albert Lee, or you ought to see this guy. He sounds just like Steve Warner. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody up there compares 
someone to somebody famous that they know. Right. I mean, it's not nobody's fault or anything, but it's like, well, what about George Moody or what about these other guys that play their bag off and don't sound like any of them, but are way better, you know, mm-hmm. like, nah, no, we'll pass. Yeah. Just that kind of mentality. And I was like, man, I, I just don't get that. I don't understand that. So I'm going to go to the States where some of these great Thumbs Carlisle guys live sure. and go watch them play yeah. if I can. I get it. So that was it. I just said, I'm done and I'll go, you know, if it, if it doesn't pan out, I'll come back home, shut my mouth and go back to work. You know? Yeah. Uh, so in those days, like, how did you even do it? Like, how do you get across the border? Like, was it just so lax then you could just stroll across and start living in the States? Well, not really. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't, you weren't supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, uh, stopped in from B, uh, Alberta. I went over to BC and I saw my mom and yeah. said hi and bye to her in case I got killed down there. I didn't know what it was going into or nothing, you know? <laughs> so yeah. I had a little four wheel drive pickup truck with a canopy on the back and I built a bed in the back and I loaded up, uh, two black pants for playing a pair of jeans during the day, six playing shirts, a guitar and an amp. Uh-huh. And, uh, I headed out and I went and got to the border and they said, where are you going? I said, oh, I'm going down to Bob's tavern to play some pool, shoot pool down there today. <laughs> With a bunch of they said, Okay. And they didn't even look in the back of the truck. And zip, I was gone. And then they'd come back for several years, you know, nice. <laughs> I noticed something also on your website that said, uh, after you got to the States first, you had a one, a one month gig in Reading and then you had to split in the middle of the night. What's that story? Well, yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I went there, I went to Reading because I figured, well, I'll see Merle Haggard over at the at the grocery store, you know, because he lives there. <laughs> you know, hey, sure. I just got here. I'm from Canada, eh? You know, <laughs> I didn't know. So, yeah. of course, they're on the road. They're never home working all the time. And yeah. So I thump around town. I was like, well, where can I go? Oh, there's this club called the uh, Saddlehorn. And they got a jam. And it was Monday night when I got in there Sunday night. And, and they had a jam on Monday. Uh, and they call guys up to play. I was like, Oh, cool. So I went and I watched for a while. And then he signed up on this paper up the front of the stage. And sure. so I signed up to play a couple songs. So they call me up and get up and play. And to keep me up for five or six songs, I was like, Oh, well, maybe they run out of guys to call up, you know, <laughs> so I play and then get off the stage. And this guy comes up and says, Hey, great plan. So oh, thanks. He says, are you looking for work? I said, what do you got? <laughs> he said, well, we'll start here six nights a week, starting tomorrow Wow, uh, for a month. Shit. So uh, I said, hell yeah. He said, I'll pay you 300 bucks a week. Uh, shit, back then, I, that's more than enough to get out of town on, you know? Yeah, man. So uh, I took the gig and got me a motel room, and then I, I stayed at this little funky-ass motel because I'd been using the $5 truck stop showers and sleeping in my truck until then, you know? Yeah. You're a little grimy. Yeah. Just living on the cheap. And, uh, <laughs> so I get this motel room and during the day I hear this playing. It sounds like Jerry Reed playing. I walk around the motel thing and this guy's got his door open and he's in there playing this old guy. And so I knock on the door and great plan. He says, Oh, do you play? Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. And he says, well, come on in, sit down. So we sit down, we start playing all day long, every day. About the third day, he says, hey, uh, what are you doing here? You play pretty good. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm just kind of passing through. I'm from Canada. He says, really? And I said, yeah, I'm from Canada, and I'm just kind of floating around, looking around, see what's going on, trying to learn 
learn to play better, you know, see, watch a guy, a bunch of guys play. Oh, cool. Well, who are you playing with? I said the, the name of the guy. And uh-huh. he says, Oh, that son of a bitch. You know, he's a Coke dealer and, and he, and he uh, raises these fighting cock roosters and oh my cops God. are watching his ass all the time. And he's just the devil, that guy. I said, well, he's been real nice to me. Give me a gig, you know? Yeah. And he said, well, be careful. That guy's a real shit, you know? Wow. So, of course, that night I go to the band leader and I said, hey, do you know this guy, Lucky? And he goes, oh, that motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> you know? so, well, I don't know if you put that on your radio. But, you bet uh, you can, yeah. But yeah, he was like, oh, that guy's just a pain. He's, he's just a sour grapes, miserable old bastard. And, and he plays great, but he's just such a prick. Nobody wants to work with him. Yeah. <laughs> so this guy would never hire him. So he was so mad that I had that gig and that I was Canadian. He called immigration on me. Oh, shit. Yeah. Nice guy. Come yeah. on and play. <laughs> oh, my God. So this guy calls me. The singer calls me at like seven o'clock about the fifth night. Yeah. And says, uh, hey, uh, get your shit out of there and get going now. I'll meet you down in Cottonwood, which is another town south of there. Uh-huh. Uh, and I'll pay you and I'll, I'll have your amp already. I went and got it. I oh. said, oh, okay. What's up? He said, well, your best friend, your new best friend just called the INS on you and they're coming to get you. Oh, no. Turned out he had a scanner radio yeah. as well as this other guy did. You know, because <laughs> I guess they like listening to him, <laughs> you know. So anyway, he had the heads up on it. He said, get out of there and I'll meet you. So uh, that night, I, you know, I got my shit. I got out of there. He met me and paid me. And we've been best buddies still. I mean, I, I uh, emailed him this morning talking to him. What's his still name? friends with that guy. So, uh, yeah, so I had to leave town kind of in a hurry there. And I, from there, I went down to San Jose. I heard about a gig down there. And Bobby Black, this wonderful steel player, uh-huh. was playing at this uh, at this club. And he was in that band. And they needed a guitar player. Yeah. So I went down there and heard about it. Just drove down and figured out, see if I can get it. So I wound up down there and auditioned for the gig and got that. I played there for, I don't know, six, seven months, something like that. Uh-huh. Kind of spent the rest of my days doing that. <laughs> wow, man, that's crazy. And then and then yeah. you and then you ended up in LA after that too, right? Yeah. I went to, I did the San Jose, then I went to Santa Cruz and played with a gal, did some bluegrass and swing over there for a little while and and uh, it was too much hippie for me, so I got I couldn't take that. And uh, I got out of Santa Cruz. I went down to L.A. Yeah, because I thought, well, I'll get to see all the hot rod L.A. guys down there, you know. Yeah. So I just passed through there. Same deal. I called a fiddle player, and he said, "Oh, go see this band over there. They might be able to help you out." So I went and saw a band down in Anaheim, and uh, the fiddle player there recommended me to a bass player that he knew. And, that guy needed a guitar player, so I got a gig, went and auditioned two days later with that guy in a garage, and I got a gig seven nights a week with him for probably two years. Wow. So this is, yeah. this is like uh, late 80s, I guess, right? Uh, when I moved to L.A., I think it was 87, okay. something like that. So there yeah, was a... 88. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. 
Also, small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So there was like a real country scene going on in the late 80s in LA? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, there was a lot of, a uh, lot of, uh, not, yeah, it was an older style country, 70s, 60s, 70s country. Uh-huh. But rockabilly was huge. And, and uh, uh, you know, of course, the rock thing and all the hair bands and glamour shit and all that was going real big. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, there was a live, you know, you had to drive. You'd have to, you'd have to go from, uh, you know, you could play up in the valley in uh, Van Nuys or North Hollywood and then, you could play uh, down in Orange County, mm-hmm. which was a whole other world down there. There's a whole bunch of little towns you could play in clubs there and lots and lots of country stuff. Very, very little in the town of L.A. itself, you know. Right. That was all glitzy rock and roll stuff. But yeah. all every surrounding area, uh, you know, Glendale, where they do all the uh, Jay Leno show and all that back then with Johnny Carson, and, you know, those yeah. That area there, that was had a bunch of big country clubs out there. Wow. And yeah, there was a lot of country music. Did you ever have any downtime where you were starving and not able to land a gig? Or did it just kind of like one thing came up after another? Yeah, I just was a lucky on a horseshoe in my ass for a couple of years, I think, you know. <laughs> and then, well, until I got to Nashville, then it kind of stopped. <laughs> right, right. So, so, and what about gear-wise? Like, were you playing tellies yet at this point, or were you still playing your black strat, and what were you playing? Oh, no, I had, uh, I, I was into collecting guitars, uh, started that when I was probably 18 or 19. Mm-hmm. So I was got into the vintage thing a lot. So I had a pile of stuff. But when I when I came to the states from Canada, I put all my stuff in storage, uh-huh. and I brought me a, I brought a '66 uh, Esquire that I'd bought a really lightweight one, and I'd put uh, a neck pickup in it and a strap pickup in the middle. Okay, and then, so that was kind of my my everything guitar. Yeah. So that was the one I was playing. And then when I moved to LA, that's when I, well, I was there like almost four years. Uh-huh. So while I was there, I did a whole bunch of wheeling and dealing and oh yeah, restoring vintage stuff and all that. So I really got into the stuff there. But until then, I only played that one Esquire all the time. You know? And and in those days, could you walk into a shop in LA and find like a '60s Tele for five hundred bucks? Nah, not very often. You know, you could you could find oddball stuff that people weren't aware of. Uh-huh. But no, I think back in when I was there, I would say, I remember going into all the vintage stores, 
in Hollywood, like voltage guitars, and there's a whole bunch of them down there, Hollywood and uh, Gardner area uh-huh. in, in LA. And uh, I remember going into like voltage and seeing a 53 telly, and it was uh, $1,800 then. Oh, okay. So they, they knew what they had. You no. Know. Yeah. Oh, definitely. But so the, you know, the only ones you're going to find at that point for 600 bucks would be, you know, in Swift Current or somewhere, you right. know, <laughs> like a little small country town or, you know, maybe a yard sale, you could get it for nothing, you know, but uh, everybody scoured the papers there and they had a thing called the recycler, uh-huh. which was, you know, like a green sheet kind of a like Craigslist is now, but it right. was a newspaper. Yeah. And I mean, everybody got that thing and went, you know, would get, get it, uh, whatever. If it came out Thursday, they'd get it, you know, Wednesday night. Uh-huh. Some people and some people knew who the printer was or whatever, and they got it on Tuesday, all the information. Right. So a lot of, a lot of the hardcore collector guys, had an extra in. So by the time the ad come out, it was already gone. Some of the good stuff, you know? Right. right. Yeah. You got to act fast. So <laughs> yeah, she so had to move fast, but you could find stuff that was, uh, that wasn't primo pristine collector. You could get, uh, you know, I bought a pile of vintage stuff that was a refinished body or refretted and new pickups or something like that. So I, you know, had always hoarded and saved a bunch of parts mm-hmm. from fixing guitars. And back in the seventies, everybody was wanting DiMarzio pickups and brass parts on their guitar. Right. So I did a lot of that kind of work, uh, trading out parts with guys. And I would trade, I would do all the work. They'd buy their DiMarzio pickups and their metal Schecter pick guards and all that <laughs> stuff. And yeah. I would put all that shit on the guitar and trade them. Say, are you going to sell your parts? Oh, hell, they're no good to be. You want them? And then I would say, oh, okay, I'll trade you my labor for rewiring it and putting it all together for your old parts. Oh, great. Like I'm the dummy, you know? (laughs) So, uh, so I had boxes of that shit. So I would buy a bunch of old stuff as, as much old stuff as I could that was original and, uh, restore it and put it back, you know, with all the parts that I had. Right on. That's wicked. And try and put it back to, you know, as close to as original as I could get, and then I could get a little bit more money off it. And yeah. that way I made a few bucks on the side as well as just from playing alone, you know? Yeah, yeah. So you'd spent some time in L.A., and did, did it just, you still felt like you, you needed to go to Nashville, obviously. It sounded like you were destined to go to Nashville sooner or later, right? Well, I wanted to go all the time, you know, but it, but what drove me out of L.A., was getting my truck broke into four times. <laughs> That'll do it. Yeah. yeah, and of course, when I left Canada, I had put a brand new, oh, probably at that point, back stereos were stupid expensive uh-huh. for high-dollar stuff in cars back in those days. You know, now that same stereo would be 50 bucks, you know, right. but back then I had probably $2,500 worth of stereo in that in little truck, and... uh when I got to LA after, oh, it was about a year, uh, I got broke into. So then I went down to about a $1,200 one, <laughs> and lost it, went down to about a $700 one. Yeah. And then, the, you know, it's just like kept going. And finally I went, I'm not supposed to be here, I guess. I need to get going. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just, you know, finished out the gigs that I had and didn't book anymore. And so that's it. I'm done. I'm moving. So I thought I hell with it, though. I left there and uh, I stopped in San Angelo, Texas for a few months and played with a buddy of mine there. 
uh, he needed a guitar player and said, Hey, can you come fill in for a couple of weeks? And I said, sure. So after about three months, I found out and figured out that he wasn't looking for anybody else, you know, uh, the guitar player. Right. So he was hoping I'd stay there. And I was like, nah, uh, if I'm this close to the Astral, I got to get over there. And yeah. just, I want to, I want to watch those guys play, you know, I want to go to the Opry and see Leon Rhodes play. And right. Buddy Emmons, those kind of guys. So. What was Nashville like at that point? That was probably nineteen nine, like eighty nine or ninety or something like that. Yeah, I think it was ninety something, maybe eighty nine or ninety. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, it was swinging, lots of music, lots of you know, like it is now. It's lots of stuff going on. Um, but Broadway you know, was Broadway. It was not what it is now, right? It was sort of a CD. Oh, not at all. It was just barely. It was still real, real CD and real funky. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Peep show places and yeah. Uh, yeah. porno shops and all that kind of funky stuff like that. And uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the BR five four nine band. Sure, they're the guys. I think, my opinion, that kind of turned Broadway into what it is today. Because mm-hmm. they were down there sleeping on the floor upstairs and, and uh, playing at Roberts. Yep, and. Uh, made it go, you know, turned it into what it was. And then pretty soon, you know, the wheel got going and a bunch of other places or, you know, uh, Tootsie's of course was always there, but it's right. still a shithole. Yeah, you, know, it <laughs> you know, it's a crap place with a bad sound and yeah. the band's still the last thought and shoved up by the window where it sounds the worst, yeah. you know, just on and on. So yeah, it was real funky, but it was coming along and, and, uh, I don't know. I was, I would say it, it, it really got going for them guys down there, probably, you know, 93 or something like that. we yeah. started picking up and doing really well down there. Yeah. But when I first went there, yeah, it was, you know, real funky. And, but my first week there, I bought a black face twin for 600 bucks at Friedman's pawn shop. Nice. And were you, so nice. how long were you in Nashville before you managed to get some work going or did you just kind of pull up and get a gig? No, hell no. I thumped around and I went to every jam every every night, every day. Yeah. Sat in with guys during the day doing duos, trios, whatever. Just trying to get my name out a little bit. And uh, shit, I couldn't buy a gig for really? probably, uh, yeah, probably a month and a half. I was almost out of money. Yeah. And I got a couple of gigs out in Arkansas playing with a gal, but we had to drive all the way out there and play the weekend, then come back. And so by the time you you know, did, uh, did the gig and gas and food out there, you know, didn't come home with too much money. So yeah. that wasn't going to last either just doing that. So it took a while. And then I finally, uh, after about a, uh, almost two months, uh, I'd been going to the stagecoach club where Don Kelly was playing at the time. Uh-huh. And he had been there. I don't know. He was there probably 12 or 14 years. Brent Mason played eight there with him eight wow. years. Yeah. And, uh, so lucky for me, they were getting rid of the guitar player they had at the time. And I had filled in a couple of times for him, just a couple of nights where he had some trouble. He, you know, was one time he get beat his girlfriend up in the bathroom there at the club. So they threw him out and sent him home. And, uh. and uh, I was there and said, Hey, you got your amp? Yeah. Come play with us. You know, so okay. that he's had some problems. Anyway, they ran him off and, and, uh, 
Don offered me the gig. So I did that gig there seven nights a week, six with Don. Uh-huh. And uh, the seventh night was his, uh, they were off, but they had another band. So I played with that band as well. And awesome. I did that for a couple of years, seven nights a week there. And once I started there. Don Kelly, for people that don't know, is sort of like a, he's like a Nashville institution for like heavy, heavy guitar players. Like a lot of people have gone through his band. And well, there was a lot of skinny guys played there too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what was he, what, what was he like as a band leader? Was he pretty, uh, cause he's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He's the biggest guitar homo guitar fan right. you'll ever meet. Yeah. He just loves the guitar. He plays great. He's a blues guy at heart. Oh, okay. But he just loves guitar and playing and all of that. So he just loves guitar players that want to play and play good, you know? Yeah. So he was always encouraging. Like, if you did a good solo, he'd go, go again. Until you run out of shit to play. And then (laughs) then he'd laugh at you. (laughs) So the next night, maybe you got one more round because you'd been working on it. But he was that kind of guy, real fun and encouraging. And of course, everything he played was real energetic and, and, you know, lots of blues and lots of real fast, hot picking, two beat kind of chicken picking kind of things and a lot of fun playing and long songs because of the solos. Yep. But the dancers liked that on the dance floor. So he was a hit there. Like I say, he was there 12, 14 years. And wow. then after that, he went to the, uh, the Pink Elephant in Donaldson, which was a, an old bar. Mm-hmm. And he did that for a couple of years. Then he went to Gabe's for probably five years. Now he's been at Robert's, I don't know, probably 20 years, I guess now. I, I guess so. Yeah, man. He's, yeah, he's an institution there. But yeah, he's been definitely a springboard for all the nut job guitar <laughs> players that, that uh, yeah. have done well after that gig, you know. Yeah, but totally. you know, is a really good guitar player's dream gig. Yeah, because you get to overplay from nine to two every night. Tell me how the Merle Haggard gig came about, because that's sort of that's what you did next after the Don Kelly thing, right? Yeah, well, I played with some other guys too. I played with a fellow named Clinton Gregory, a wonderful fiddle player singer that had a record deal and we were out on the road for a couple of years uh-huh. and I still played around town and filled in with Don and different guys and all of that. And I was playing in Turner's alley for a couple of years at skulls rainbow room. Sure. And, uh, just opened up again. That's what I heard. Yeah. <laughs> Merle, when they came to town and do, you know, TV shows and stuff and, and you know, the TV shows, they tape the used to T and N stuff. They would tape a lot of them at four or five o'clock in the afternoon of course, they didn't come on till eight at night because then they could edit all the shit out of it and uh-huh. do all that. But so those guys would come in and uh, do the TV show and they'd be done by seven. So the band would just scatter around town and go hit all the clubs and go jam and hang out, whatever. Yeah. So I got to know a bunch of the band guys because they would come and see me play. And Kuhn Strong came and sat in and played a lot uh, with my trio. I got to know those guys. And then uh, Joe Manuel was playing the gig at the time. And Joe quit, and uh, Merle said, hey, who do you guys want to get? Because Joe was going on the road with Leanne Womack at the okay. time as her band leader, so he had a really good position there, and yeah. so he kind of had to take it. Right. When he left, Merle said to the band, who do you guys want to get? And five out of eight of them said me. <laughs> nice. Um, so that was a shoe in there. It was real lucky, you know. 
had you met Merle at that point or no? Okay. No, he told me he'd seen me play downtown though, before different things he'd snuck in the back or whatever and watched me play and Uh didn't, you know, never did come up and say anything or nothing. But, uh, yeah. So he called me up, uh, on the phone says, is this red Volker? (laughs) I said, yeah. He said, this is Merle Haggard. And I said, Murph, you rotten bastard. (laughs) I I thought it was my buddy, Jim Murphy, a steel player. Uh And he was a real prankster, so it had to be him. Sure. Merle Haggard wouldn't call me. What for? You know? Yeah. So he goes, no, no, no. I'm Merle Haggard. I'm a singer. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Murph couldn't do that. He, he wouldn't have done that. So that, maybe it was him. Uh-huh. So I said, okay. And then he said, uh, you know, Norm Hamlet, the steel player, he gave me your number. And he tied a bunch of it together. I was like, Oh, okay. Well, sorry about that. <laughs> he just laughed. <laughs> yeah. And he said, well, he said, I'm calling cause I need a guitar player. You want to come play with us? <laughs> I said, you have uh, to think about that one yeah, for a while. <laughs> sure. <laughs> he said, yeah, oh, great. He said, well, uh, get you to come start out in California, you know, in a, whatever it was a week and a half or something like that. Uh-huh. And I said, well, can you get somebody in your organization to send me, uh, cassettes or whatever of how your guys are doing your sets now. Mm-hmm. I said, I know most of your stuff, but I know you from seeing you guys live that you changed the arrangements right. over the years. Cause you get bored of playing them the old way, like the record. So you jack them up and do a bunch of harmony ensemble stuff. I'd like to hear some of that, that you guys are doing now. And if I could get copies of that, it'd be great. He goes, nah, just come play with us. <laughs> I was like, all right, that kind of gig. Yeah, <laughs> They're even like that at the top. <laughs> was there any rehearsing or anything, or you just dove right in? No, nah, just show up. Yeah. So how busy was the that band at that time? Like, were you doing like 200 nights a year, or was he slowing down a bit? Yeah, we probably did 250. Holy shit. That's a lot. Yeah, he was playing quite a bit. And you started playing on his records and stuff, and you were, at, you were there for an interesting time, I think, because like he was sort of like on a downward thing as far as his recording career was going. And then all of a sudden, like around 2000, um, when, uh, he did, if I could only fly, you played on that record. And that's sort of like, yeah, that was like his moment where he kind of came back and, and started not being forced to be a, a country star kind of thing. So that was a, right. cool, that yeah. was a cool time to be involved with him, man. Oh, it was awesome for me. I mean, just, you know, as a kid, I'm, I'm, you know, wanting to copy everything Roy Nichols did and learned all those songs and all those intros, all the endings, turnarounds, all that stuff, you know, and then several years later, I'm sleeping in that guy's bunk, you know, (laughs) how do you beat that? (laughs) You don't, you don't, you know, for a Telecaster nut, that's about as high as you can kick for a country guy, you know. Can you tell me a bit about making that record? Like, uh, there's some great guitar playing of yours on there, but it sounds really intimate and it's really like, it's, it's very, um, sparse of a record. Like there's no bells and whistles. Was it pretty done pretty live and, and all in the room, all in the same room together and stuff? Yeah. Uh, was a real nice studio at his, uh, at his place. And, okay. and, uh, so we recorded there all the time. There's probably another 300 songs in the can that probably will never really? see the light of day that we've done. Oh yeah. But uh, that particular record was, I, I kind of giggle about it now because everybody goes, man, your tone, the sound. And I'm like, really? 
<laughs> so what it is is I use I had a '66 Telecaster, another one, Maple Neck, yeah, stock, totally stock, yeah, a Belden cable into a Countryman direct box right to the board. Really? Nothing else. Why no? Why so, yeah, it kind of blows the bubble of having the dream amp. Yeah. You know? So why no amp? Like, what was that all about? Well, I just I was like I didn't have all our all our big stuff was in the equipment truck. And so I didn't want to bring a big twin amp out and, and hook it up because it's so loud and big and all that. And yeah. the little room we played in the studio, the big big room for everything was down some stairs. Yeah. So I was like, nah, I don't want to do that. Let me try that. Just go direct on this box. <laughs> <laughs> Engineer says, yeah, sure. Why not? You know, so he did. And I was like, wow, sounds pretty good. Did a little reverb on it. Yeah. That was it. Nice. The whole record is done like so that. So it's kind of kind of a lazy thing in a way. <laughs> and there were some other amps there, but they were like tube works amps or just some bullshit kind of amps to me. Right. Yeah. And I was like, I ain't gonna play through that crap. Let me just use a direct box. I know it'll sound better than those things. That's hilarious. They all hum and they all distorted. And they're like, you know, yeah. to me they're just like something a kid fifteen year old would use in a garage amps, you know. Yeah. yeah. That, and they wound up in that studio, who knows why or how, but they, you know, maybe you lost the bet and they, they all wound up in there. So I didn't, <laughs> didn't want to play through any of those and I didn't want to haul my big one in there. So yeah. but I'll just go direct. So I went to that direct box and it actually turned out pretty, pretty nice. Wow. Know? And w- was all that stuff tracked pretty much live? Like, were you all playing together? Yeah. Cause we'd done a bunch of those songs live on the road. Cause if for a while he was on a blaze Foley Jag. Yeah. And, uh, so you know, and he was in contact with the family, trying to get all the uh, legal stuff of that, so that uh, they would get all the r- proper royalties for the writing things and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And of course, the the family was kind of hesitant; they thought they were going to get ripped off again or whatever, for, like they did before. Or oh, really? That kind of deal. So there was a little bit of stuff going there, but he got through it all, and yeah, it, you know, convinced them that he wasn't going to shit up, shit on them, and all that. <laughs> So we'd been doing a lot of that stuff live and, and mostly at stuff that we didn't do live, we did at sound checks. Okay. So you'd kind of worked it up. Yeah. And so we do the sound checks lots and, and every day. So I'd be, well, let's try to just start dinking around with something and then, oh, okay, well, that's that song. Uh-huh. So we'd start with that. So at the worst, when we get to the studio, we're like, okay, we've been jacking with this tune. We kind of got it down, but we still don't, nobody has an intro kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, did that, you know, th- that's where we would put something together and say, okay, let's try it mm-hmm. and then knock it off and that would be it. Cause everybody knew the rest of the song. So right. the only thing that had to be kind of created is maybe the, an intro or an ending if it wasn't a fade, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and Merle would sing live with you guys. Oh yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he was spot on that guy. I mean, was, he would, sometimes he'd come back and redo something where he wasn't happy with it. Uh-huh. But almost every time was a first take guy. He was that good. That's my, unbelievable. My kind of guy. I love it. I wish I was that kind of guy, but he <laughs> sure was. That's for sure. Um, another one that you played on is the Peer Sessions, which is a, another really cool record. And the lineup on that record is insane. There's you know like the Anita Kerr singers and Owen Bradley's on it. Grady Martin's on it. Did you were you playing with all those guys, or how did that record come together? Yeah, that was a I was actually a New Year's Eve uh, recording in Nashville where he did all that stuff. Wow. 
Yeah, it was awesome. And Allison Cross was singing with Merle doing a duet. And I was sitting in a chair right beside her. And uh, she still laughs about this, but uh, I had a really bad cold. <laughs> and I was plugged in, sitting in a chair, and my aunt was in another room. Yeah. And everybody's all playing live all at once. And, and I had a real bad cold, so I was coughing real bad. <laughs> and I was eating cough candies like crazy. Yeah. And they were singing this ballad, and I'm holding back this cough. And I know it's coming. <laughs> so I hold my breath, and I pass out. Because I didn't want to wreck. They were like, we're halfway through the song. And I thought, I'll mess the song up if I go into a choking thing. And they have to stop, and it's my fault. And could have been a perfect track. And I'm just thinking of all that stuff. And I'm sure. like, man, I can't, I can't do it. So I'm just holding back, holding back. And I'm holding my breath, I guess. And I passed out. So I fell out of the chair. <laughs> And land at her feet looking up at her when I wake up. Of course. And of course, all the bad guys are all laughing like hell. It sounded like somebody threw a telecaster down some stairs when you <laughs> fell. Because the guitar just went, kick, 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 you know. <laughs> so I was like, that was, that was my memory of the peer sessions. That's the only thing I can think of oh when that, that time went on because it was such a horrible embarrassment for I me. Bet. I bet. But I listen to the CD now and I go, oh. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Did, <laughs> but that's the only thing I can remember. I don't remember hardly anything else about it other than me being an ass and embarrassing <laughs> myself in front of all those people by fainting <laughs> and falling at her feet. <laughs> um, so, do you yeah. do you remember um, playing with Grady Martin? Like, was he? How old was he at that time? Oh, I don't know. He was probably. I don't know. Well, when when did he die? It was maybe just he must have been he must have been pretty old at that point, like in his eight, like nine. Yeah, it was ninety. It was pretty. He was pretty close to when he died, like maybe okay. a year after that or something. Uh-huh. So I'm not sure now, but uh, and was he still playing well and stuff? Oh hell yeah! Nice. Yeah, he played awesome. What a wonderful player! Oh, he's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I love his. I love yeah. his playing. Yeah, I think he played great right till the end, and he just got so sick at the end with cancer that he just yeah. was like, he didn't play anymore because he was too sick, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I'm sure if you put a guitar in his hands, even in the band, he could probably still play better than everybody else. Uh-huh. He just had, he was that kind of guy, you know? He just played great all the time. Life on the road with, with Merle and, and the band, like, you're out there a lot. Was it a, generally a, a great hang, and Merle was a good guy to play for and everything? Oh, definitely. Yeah. He was just, he was the sweetest guy. And just, you know, uh, if he said he would do something, he would bend over backwards to do it for you. Uh And a lot of times if he couldn't, it was because somebody else was in the way and messing shit up or making it not happen because it might help them instead of him, you know? Yeah. Yeah that kind of stuff. But he was a great guy. And, you know, the bus would break down once in a while and me and him would go for a walk. And to me, that was some of the best things for me. Uh I mean, playing music with him, of course, is, uh, is like, wow, you know, but, but just as a regular guy walking down the road for an hour while we're waiting on a tow truck Uh to come drag the bus off, uh, that was some of the best thing for me where we would just talk about, you know, music and he was genuinely interested. Like, like he's such a guitar nut 
that he he actually told me he said I, if I didn't if I could play a real guitar really good guitar I'd never sing. He's always wanted to be a guitar player. I never really? wanted to be a singer. Interesting. Yeah. He said, I would give it all up tomorrow if I could be somebody's guitar player that worked, you know, enough that I could feed my family, but where I was got to play and be a great guitar player and contribute as a player to somebody's sound like other people have done for me, you know, which was like, what? That's when crazy. you sing like that? Yeah. Yeah. He was just real, real, real humbly normal guy that way. He just wanted to be a guitar player more than anything. And it you know, it happened for him that his voice was what took him where, where it went. And, and, uh, but he still wanted to be a guitar player. That was his main goal. You know, that's so cool. So we had lots of talks like that, you know, and he said, let me ask you something. He said, I listen to your CDs and you sing pretty good. He said, why don't you, uh, how about you, uh, Maybe in the middle of our show, if I stop, you know, and I feature you for a couple songs, give me a little bit of a break from singing the whole show, you know. Mm -hmm. I said, not on your life. That ain't going to (laughs) happen. And he looked at me like a little kid, like, what? And I said, you got to be kidding me. And he goes, no, I'm serious. It's a heart attack. (laughs) And I said, like, you're going to sing for what? An hour? 45 minutes or something, then you're going to have me sing? <laughs> I said, it ain't going to happen. He said, why? You could help sell your CDs and promote your own thing. And I was like, no, you're not getting it. And he said, <laughs> he said what do you mean? I said, I'm going to sing after you. That's like, that's like following a bulldozer with a fucking teaspoon. <laughs> you know, so no, I'm not going to sing in between the songs. So he got somebody else in the band to do it or whatever, you know. Oh, yeah. But it was like, he was that kind of guy too. He wanted to help me. Right. You know, oh, you could help sell more of your CDs. You yeah, know, I was like, sure. no, I'm I'm playing guitar with you. I don't give a shit about none of my stuff. I get it. You man. know, that would be terrifying. Yeah, I get it. Oh, it's terrifying, but what a what a nice, genuine thing for him to do. Absolutely. You know, on his gig and his world, you know? It's like, yeah. wow. Yeah. What a cool guy. Yeah. Just to offer that up, you know? That is amazing. Wow. So, yeah, it was, it was a wonderful job. I'm kind of running out of time here, and I'm sure you are as well, but uh, maybe you could um, just give me a little glimpse of, of your life in Austin, and, and I know that... that since you've moved there, you've sort of found a place finally, I guess, that you that you feel at home. It seems like you're playing constantly still, which is awesome. Um, wh- what is it that you liked about Austin that brought you there and and uh, and what's kept you there over the years? Well, I would say Nashville brought me here. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. And you know that now. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, I mean, I've been back in town a couple of times, fly in to record and dine and dash. But yeah. uh, when I go downtown and hear some of the music down there, it's like, yeah, it's, it's like Knott's Berry Farm or Disneyland, you know, it's yeah. almost cartoonish. Yes. You know, I mean, there's some great players and stuff down there and fantastic stuff, but uh, some of the music and just some of the people that are the front front men kind of people that are, you know, with the mullet and the hat, cowboy hat, that kind of stuff. It's like, what? Yeah. It's not the same. So anyway, that's what drove me out of there. And uh, I came here because I thought, well, there's still a little bit of old country stuff and Western swing around and 
I figure when the country music finally takes its last dying breath, it'll probably be in, here in Texas. So I thought, shit, I might as well be there. Uh, I hope it never happens, but if it does, I want to be there because there's still a bit of it left. So yeah. that said, uh, I've been playing here all the time. I've been here 18 years now, and I love it. There's lots of work and lots going on. It's changing all the time, and it's getting a little bit more Nashville-y, too. Mm-hmm. But that said, there's still lots and lots of Texas is a big state. So not just Austin alone, you, you know, but you can go out of town and play a bunch of other little towns all over the place. And, and there's people love the old school kind of country stuff. And, sure. and there's, in Austin, there's a... Yeah, pile of guitar nuts so they like the goofy instrumental kind of oddball anything goes sort of guitar music so i get away with doing that stuff here where in nashville i couldn't do hardly any of that right here i get get to do that and i still get to play western swing and old country and george jones and merle haggard paycheck and that kind of stuff and then i get to with my band i get to do all kinds of uh, instrumental things of my own and you know we do allman brothers and Joe Cocker and it doesn't matter what it is. We can do whatever we want. And it seems like I can play all that shit on a gig and uh, the same people stay for the whole thing. They don't leave. Right. So I'm okay with that. You know, I know, I know the continental club is one of your main haunts, but what are the other places that you really dig around town these days? Oh, there's a bunch of places. I mean, I've been liking the happy hour things where I just do a small little band or a duo. And, uh, there's a Cajun restaurant called Evangeline cafe they get a great blues band there and uh, all kinds of music, all different variety. Like all of Austin, they have so many different styles of music every night. Yeah. Uh, but the Saxon pub's a good one. There's just a bunch of, whole bunch of new ones that opened up on the east side of town where they're rejuvenating the old funky part of town, kind of like Broadway, yeah. where there's a bunch of new clubs opened up there and they're all swinging seven nights a week. Bands from happy hour from six o'clock till two in the morning. Oh, nice. You know, all of them. Yeah. So there's lots of good places to go watch and see bands and, or, you know, if you live here, play in them or if you're a tourist, come and watch and see. There's just tons and tons of it. It's great. Um, And what about recordings? Are you doing any, any solo albums or anything like that in the next little while? I've been threatening to, but it's the same (laughs) old thing. But, you know, by the time I save up a little bit, bit more money to, to put on a CD, then I see an old car I want, and I go, "Man, eh, the record will wait. I could get a new motor for my Studebaker instead." You know, <laughs> kind of that sort of thing. Where I'm, I'm threatening to do it all the time, and I want to do it, uh-huh. but I'm kind of not in a real big hurry because you know it's the same uh-huh. old thing. You don't make any money off CDs anymore. And, yeah, uh, all they are is an expensive business card to give to people or to let somebody else steal them. You know, right, right. Well, I, so, I, I saw that uh, you were doing a duo with um, Cindy Cashdollar, and that sounded awesome. I, I'd love to, I'd love to hear a record of that stuff. Yeah, she was in my band for a couple of years, but she moved back to uh, Woodstock, New York, where oh, yeah, she's right. from. Yeah, right. She's there now. Okay. And uh, she's been back there now. Actually, she's in town this weekend, I think. Okay. Uh, just for the weekend, but uh, she's been back there for a couple of years and working up there a lot doing all kinds of stuff with Arlen Roth and yeah. different folks up there. The, um, what is it? Uh, Amy Helm. Yep. All those guys. Yeah. She's all that playing up there a lot with those folks. And yeah. There's a good doing scene really well, but yeah, she was a blast to play with. 
I got to run and I'm sure you've got other things to do, but I, I really appreciate you taking the time today, man. It's been great to talk to you and hear some of your stories. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. All right. Well, take care. Okay. Thank thanks, you. Red. Okay. Okay. See you, Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, well, now that was fun. Red Volker, what a dude. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. I had a blast bringing it to you, and I'm looking forward to bringing you another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers in one month from now. I will see you then. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.